Well, good morning. If you've got your Bibles, let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We're still in a sermon series working our way through the book uh, that Solomon uh, has given to us. And uh, if you're a moviegoer, if you like to watch movies, uh, you've probably rented one and you've watched it at home uh, lately, at least for the last year. And um, you, you come across some of those movies where you're You know, you're watching it and you're just kind of like, man, this is kind of dark. This is kind of boring. This is kind of like not the kind of movie that I want to watch. So you start maybe checking your phone or going to the kitchen or whatever. And then something happens in the movie and you're like, oh, okay. The plot kind of, you know, thickens and kind of twists. And then, you know, by the end of the movie, you're kind of like, oh, okay. Wasn't a bad movie, right? Um, That's kind of what I feel like the sermon's going to be today. (laughs) It's, it's going to kind of be like, why did we get up for this? Uh, why did we go through that with the kids and fight in the car and then get here? Um, that, that's probably how it's going to go, but, but it's going to be helpful. It's going to be uh, very, I think, enlightening and very encouraging at the end. So hang with me as we journey through uh, Ecclesiastes 9 uh, today. Do you trust me? Okay, that was much better than I thought it was gonna, the response was gonna be, so that was, that was great. So, in, in, in actually chapter eight is where we're gonna start. Uh, so we kind of left off at the end of chapter eight. We're gonna go back to verse 16 and 17. It kind of sets up the context for verse uh, nine, or chapter nine. So let's dive in together. Solomon says, <clears throat> when I applied my heart to know wisdom, and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So this is really uh, King Solomon, Pastor Solomon, who is a very frustrated philosopher. We've seen this journey uh, that he has been on, and the more he tried to figure out the answers, the more he couldn't figure anything out, the more sleep he lost. And so it's essentially what he's saying, that the more I tried to figure it out, uh, I realized it wasn't allowing me to sleep. I was frustrated. I wanted the answers, but he's saying, I realized that Uh, Even though I wanted the answers, God is not going to provide all of those answers for me. And so we see the work of God in our life, in and around our life. But most of the time, we just can't really figure it out. If we're honest, we, we, we don't really know why certain things happen. And so we speculate and we say, well, I thank God this and God might have been doing this at this time. But ultimately, Solomon makes it clear, no matter how wise you are, no matter how smart you are, he says, no matter how much toiling uh, after you know, wisdom and seeking after knowledge, he says, you're still gonna fail to understand God's holy and righteous ways. And so when you expect God to give you all the answers, when you're expecting God to you know, give you all these answers in your life and why this happened, why that happened, what you're doing is, you're not actually asking God to do something impossible. You're asking yourself to do something impossible. Certainly, God is capable of giving you the answers, but the onus really is on us. We actually don't have the capacity to understand all that God is doing, and and we don't uh, fully understand all of his ways. And so 
Uh, if he gave us the answer, if he actually shared it with us, if he wrote it in the clouds or you know, wrote it on the wall of your living room, you still wouldn't get it. We want God to give us answers, uh, but even if he doesn't, we lack the wisdom to understand it. So how do we cope with this reality that our, our knowledge is limited? It can be very frustrating. It could lead you to be very upset. Solomon gives us some advice. So we're gonna jump now to verse one, chapter nine. He says, but all of this I laid to heart. This, this realization that my knowledge is limited. I, I laid it to my heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. A lot of this is, is uh, difficult for us to apply and I wanna unpack it here together. So when Solomon realizes that he's not gonna understand some of the things that God is doing in his life because of his lack of knowledge, because it's limited, then he says well, what we can do is we can rest in the hands of God. Our minds can rest, our hearts can rest, our, our mentality, our anxiety can all rest in the idea that you can trust that your life is actually in the hands of God, right? And so he is in control. If this twisted world is all there is and there is no God, then it really doesn't matter how we live. Go sin, live it up, do whatever you wanna do because nobody's gonna hold you accountable for what you say or for what you do. But Solomon is saying, yes, there is a God. And in your life, uh, in this world, is resting in his hands. Now, what does that really mean, that, that our life is in his hands? And it simply means that God is sovereign. It means that God is directing. It means that everything that is happening is under his control. And so when you were little and you sang that old song, he's got the whole world in his hands, the truth is he actually does. Everything is in the hands of God. And and that means that he is in control, but knowing that he's got the whole world in his hands is great, but we look around and we see so much evil. We see and experience so many things that aren't good, and we wonder, am I really in the hands of God? I mean, if I was in the hands of God, wouldn't it be safer? Wouldn't it be easier? Wouldn't God be blessing me in different ways? And in, in this situation, we feel like, Am I really in his hands? And here's what Solomon is saying. He's saying it's, it's not good for us to look at our circumstances because circumstances are not a good indicator of God's favor or of his rejection. 
when you just look at your life, when you look at the experiences that you've gone through, when you look at some of the uh, terrible events that have happened to you or terrible events that have happened in the world at large, the unwise person looks at those circumstances and then makes a judgment that God loves them or hates them. Now, when Solomon uses the word hate here, he doesn't actually mean that God is hating something. When we see that in the Bible, it means that God is rejecting someone. So we can't tell based on our circumstances if God is approving of us, if we have God's favor, or if he is actually rejecting us. Circumstances are a terrible indicator of this truth. And so the answer to this is really uh, unattainable by just looking at our circumstances. A good way to uh, realize this is when you think about COVID-19. COVID didn't come just for, you know, the evil people in the world. It didn't come for the righteous people. It hit everybody all over the world, all over the globe. It didn't matter race. It didn't matter uh, wealth. It didn't matter education. Every single person on the planet was impacted. And so we don't look at that and say, well, maybe God must be judging us or God doesn't approve of us or God is rejecting me. God doesn't love me because X, Y, or Z happened to me. Solomon is saying that is an unwise assessment. Uh, we look to the life of John the Baptist to give us a little bit of an indicator. Uh, Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest of all time. He was the greatest man, uh, Jesus explained him, of all time. And how did John the Baptist's life go? Do you remember that he was decapitated in prison alone? Yeah, that doesn't sound like the hand of God was with him, does it? And yet that's why we say we can't look at circumstances for this to be the indicator because we're all going to go through some form of suffering. We're gonna experience pain in our life. And and I I realize that here today, you might be going through something and you're actually questioning, "Does, does God really love me? Does God really care about me? Why is God allowing this to happen? The reality is every single one of us, whether you love God or you don't, we're going to experience suffering on some level. And so we can't look to these circumstances to be the indicator of God's favor or if God uh, is actually rejecting us. That's an unwise thing to do. So resist the temptation to allow your thoughts to actually go there. Christians who love Jesus, we're gonna experience this suffering. But in the midst of it, we have hope in Jesus. He is enough, he is in control. Our life is is in his hands. His timing and his plan is always bigger than you and I can actually understand. And so we trust in that. And so in verse two, he's reminding of, uh, of this greatest tragedy, which is death. And so in verse two, he teaches us that death is actually certain. Death is certain. In verse two, he says, through four, he's saying the same fate happens to everyone. And the same fate that happens to everyone is the fact that we're going to face death. It comes to all of us. And I think Solomon's point is that this is the greatest frustration upon any frustration in life, right? This is the the greatest like anxiety and, and the thing that makes us the most upset when a loved one, uh, dies, when we experience that, when we see that, it is extremely upsetting and sh- extremely frustrating. 
But that doesn't mean when someone dies that God was against him or her. It doesn't mean that they didn't live a righteous life or that God was angry with them. No, Solomon is saying death is certain. It happens to all of us. Uh, And only God knows when the right time is for each of us. And so he directs that timing for each one of us. In verse two, it teaches us that the reason why these circumstances are not good indicators of God's favor or rejection is because death happens no matter how you live. Death happens to the righteous or the wicked, he says, to the clean or the unclean. If you make sacrifices or if you don't make sacrifices, if you're good or if you're bad, he's saying death is certain for each one of us no matter how we live, regardless of if you live a moral life or immoral life. Finally, the final like, moment for all of us, we are going to face the finality of death. And he's saying this is extremely frustrating. And you might ask, if that's true, then why bother to do good? Why, why, you know, why, why would we even have to deal with this? It doesn't matter if I'm a good person or a bad person. We're gonna end up dead anyway. So just live however. And it's almost like Solomon is agreeing with that old bumper sticker. I don't know if you remember it, but it's like life sucks and then you die. It's like, we're all gonna die, it's certain. And it doesn't matter how we live. And this is that moment where I was telling you earlier, like, I'm not sure I like this movie right now. Um, but he's teaching us a, a lot of truth that's gonna help us. Verse three tells us why we die. Look at it again. He says, we are full of evil and there's madness in our hearts. So the truth and reality is that we face death because we've inherited the corruption of a sin nature from our father, who is Adam, right? And so it is a certain death because of sin in each of our life. And then in verse five, he says that death is sad. In verse five, he says that the dead know nothing. They are forgotten. What they loved is gone. What they hated is gone. Their envy is gone. I mean, this is a sad verse to read. It is a sad verse to preach. My heart was heavy this week as I labor over these verses and, and um, I, in fact reminded me that even in the last month I've been to two funerals, family members, some extended family members on Micah's side and, and every time you go to a funeral, no matter the circumstances, they are sad. It, there, the, there's a somberness and just that, that uncomfortableness that, man, one day that's gonna be me. One, one day that, that's going to actually happen. And, and so I think at the, the low, one of the lowest levels in the, in the passage here, he kind of gives us an illustration to point to the certainty and the sadness of death by saying that, that dogs are better than cats. Sorry, cat lovers, but cats are terrible. They're crazy, and we don't know why you actually purchase them. How many of you have a dog in the room? Any dog lovers? I've got a dog. Love that thing. As soon as I come in, he always greets me, and uh, he's always happy to see me. Not true of my family. So that's <laughs> <clears throat> why we love our pets, right? So in verse four, he says, a living dog is better than a dead lion. 
Now, why would he say that? For us, it's hard for us to understand because dogs are man's best friend. We love dogs, but back then, dogs were mangy, disgusting scavengers that were the lowest of the lowest animals. And lions were this majestic, you know, powerful um, you know, animal. Uh, the lion served as the royal insignia of King David and the house of David. And, and so we get this, right? You go to the zoo to go see the, the, the lion exhibit. Look, kids, it's a lion. This is amazing. You don't take your kids to see dogs in a cage. Like, that's not cool. That's not fun. And so that's, that's kind of the point here. Solomon is saying even a mangy, disgusting scavenger, lowest of the lows dogs that is alive is better than a dead, majestic lion. So living is better than dying. <laughs> awesome, Trent. <laughs> uh, it's better to be alive than dead. I didn't need to wake up early for that one. But why is that helpful? Why is that helpful? It really is helpful when you think about it. And here's why. I would say letter C is unwise people ignore the reality of death. They don't even use the word death or dying. They say he passed away. They rarely are experiencing true death, even though we watch it on TV and in video games and that kind of thing. But we, we escape and we become numb to the reality of the certainty and the finality of death. And if you are an unwise person, you'll ignore this reality. You won't care about it. It won't impact the way that you live your life. It won't impact the way that you parent your children. It won't impact the way that you uh, serve your family. It won't impact the way that you lead at work or how you run your business. The bigger point is that if you want to have an advantage in life, if you want to actually have wisdom, and, and, and then you're gonna think through the reality of death, the certainty of it. Because when you understand the finality of it, then you can actually begin to prepare for it. Are you prepared for that moment? Have you prepared yourself? Because the sadness, the greatest sadness, could be felt by your family when they realize that you didn't prepare for it well. Have you thought about your eternity? Have you thought about where you're gonna go when you die? Have you thought about that question, what does it take for a person to go to heaven? And if you're just banking on living an, an, an okay life, Solomon already says, everything in our heart is madness. We're filled with sin and God cannot allow sin into heaven. So, so are you prepared to meet your maker? That is a heavy but wise question to think through. Who, who and how will you take care of your children and family if tragedy strikes? Right? Have you prepared in advance with the will, with the life insurance? Have you taken care of these things? Have you thought through these things? This, I think, is Solomon's point. Unwise people ignore the reality of death. But then he continues. Hop down to verse 11 and then we'll, we'll go back up. But he says, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil, at an evil time. 
when it is suddenly falls upon them. What he's teaching us here is that death is sudden. It happens to us all and it is sudden. And so we just don't know when it's gonna happen. And the picture is of a fisherman. If you're a fisherman, you get this. You know, little Nemo is out there swimming, having a good time with his buddies, wants to nibble on a little snack and all of a sudden, bam! Hook right in his lip. Next thing he knows, he's getting thrown into a cooler, some kid throwing ice on him. It's sudden, right? It's vicious. And uh, that's exactly how death is. It's, it's, that's, I mean, how do you prepare for it? Sudden, it's tragic. He says it's like a, a bird that gets caught in, in a snare. Uh, we're just not ready for uh, that moment. And so to live with this wisdom is to know that our days are numbered and that hopefully will lead us to live a full life today. See the connection? Maybe a little shift now. I think that's Solomon's point for each of us. He begins to uh, shift the text and get our hearts and minds in a different direction. He tells us essentially how to live in reality, with the reality of death. When we are facing this reality, when we understand this reality, how are we and how are you and I to live? And so uh, look at verse seven, hop back up. He says, this is what we do. He says, go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments uh, be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work, uh, thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. So what he is saying here is he, he shifts the mentality, right? Let me explain it like this. Um, Several years ago, we had a staff member. Um, he and his wife were pregnant, a little boy, excited, got the room ready, their first child, everything was, was prepared and ready. Everything was healthy up until uh, this point. And they go in for delivery. And in the tragicness of the delivery, some complications happened and the baby died. And I remember visiting them in their home that night. And I remember him telling me what it felt like to hold his baby that had no life. And I just remember in that moment, I had been through several sad, sorrowful moments, but that one was about the, the, the most sorrow-filled room and moment that I have ever experienced. And I remember praying with them and I remember trying to encourage them and I just remember just not having any words. And so a hug, a high five, um, some, some stories that we were able to share uh, uh, from scripture. And I remember going home that night and when tragedy like that happens in our life, I remember going home and my kids were little at that moment. They didn't know what was going on. But I just went home and I scooped them up and I hugged them as, as, as heartfelt as I ever have. And I hugged my wife and I cried like a baby. You see, the reality is, I think this is what Solomon wants us to get. 
the reality of death should lead us to love and to appreciate the life that we do have and the time that we have to share it. It's exactly what Solomon is saying wise people do with this this knowledge that is limited. We can't understand all of God's ways. And when we are faced with the reality of death in our life. And so he gives us um, four things that we should really enjoy. And, and, And first of all, he says, if you're taking notes, to enjoy the pleasures of life. Specifically, he gives us four areas and he says, I want you to enjoy uh, the, 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 the pleasure that this world and life offers to you, but specifically, I want you to enjoy your food. <laughs> enjoy your food. Verse seven, he actually says uh, I, that I want you to eat your bread with joy. Amen, right? I love food. I love to cook on the grill, and specifically, I love cooking over an open fire, that is my favorite. It puts that smoky kind of heat, kind of amazingness, kind of how it was supposed to be back in the Garden of Eden kind of feel. And so if it's, a, if it's a ribeye, medium rare, loaded baked potato, okay, some broccoli, cause you gotta have something green. I sit down to that meal and I say, thank you, God. You are a good and holy and righteous God. And I grab my wife's hand and I hold my children's hand and I pray over that meal and I praise and worship Jesus for the bounty that I am getting ready to stuff into my mouth. Amen. That is a good, glorious moment. And I'm not being facetious. I'm not being funny. Like we really should worship God as we eat a good feast like that. Now, our problem is we're in too big of a, of a hurry. And so we're fast food, cramming hamburgers down as we're driving down the road. It's hard to worship God while you're driving, eating a disgusting burger that, you know, is made out of whatever it's made out of. If not, not real meat, we know, but chemicals essentially. And so then our health suffers. And so, so when he's saying to eat your bread, he wants us to, to really have joyful hearts when it comes to the dinner table. And it doesn't really matter what we eat. I don't think that's what he's after. What he is after is that we have thankful, joyful hearts for the blessing of the food that God prepares and gives to us. And so this is a good, glorious, God-honoring thing for us to do. So food is a gift. You should enjoy your meals. You should gather with friends. You should gather with family. You should have a big meal. You should laugh. You should tell stories. You should drink coffee at the end, have dessert at the end. And that should be an entire experience that brings joy and happiness into your life. Now, the reality for our day and time is we don't uh, have enough time to do that. We're on the run. Our kids are busy. We're busy. And so we're frozen pizza and fast fooding. And then like maybe once a month, we're able to gather at the table. And I would encourage you as an act of worship, as an act of thankfulness and joyfulness in your heart to eat with your family and actually enjoy that together and be grateful and praise God. It is an, some people think that the only part of worship is the song that we sing. Isn't that sad? That's sad if that's what you think. 
because there are so many other ways to worship God. You can worship God at work when you are thankful for the job that he's given to you. When you're walking in the mountains and your feet are in the creek up there in the little river and you're seeing the sunset, you're seeing the majestic mountains, that is an opportunity for you to put your eyes and heart and attention on a good, gracious God. And the same is true for our food. All right, letter B. Here's the next thing he says. Get ready, Baptist. He says, enjoy your drink. <laughs> enjoy your drink. Right? I say Baptist because I grew up Southern Baptist and I know this is an issue, but alcohol might be a controversial issue for some people. Uh, and mainly it's because of your experience. You were either taught about the, you know, preached against or maybe even in your uh, own experience. Uh, for me, my grandfather was um, a big drinker, and so my dad tells me uh, all kinds of stories about how the police were showing up at their house, and, and uh, they had to move 10 different times before he got out of elementary school, uh, mainly uh, in large part uh, due to alcohol abuse. And so some of you could tell uh, far worse stories, and so your experiences are going to influence your beliefs a lot of times, and so that's just a reality. But we need to approach the issue from a faithful biblical uh, perspective. And so we wanna honor God's authority and understand it with, with an appropriate view. And so when we read the Bible, we, we realize that the Bible condemns drunkenness in any form, right? That's, that's easily seen all throughout uh, the Bible. And on the other hand, the Bible is also open uh, to moderate self-controlled drinking. And that's why Solomon can say, enjoy your wine. Now, we look to Romans uh, chapter 14 specifically because it gives us some helpful instructions, I think, on the issue. And Paul says not to judge one another based on what one eats or what one drinks. And so I think that's important in a self-righteous, judgmental, uh, religious society that we kind of live in as Christians that we're reminded that we're not to judge each other based on what we eat or what we drink, not allow that to divide us. And then he also goes on in Romans 14 and he talks about how um, it's important that we, we live a certain way that we, we may not uh, cause a weaker brother to stumble. And so a lot of people would read that verse uh, in Romans and, and, and say that the wise thing to do then would be to abstain from alcohol. Your conscience has led you to that position. Um, maybe perhaps your experience as well, you kind of interpret that weaker brother section and that's how you've, how you've um, uh, taken that. Or you could also choose a, a moderation approach. Your conscience and your self-discipline allow you to partake and you don't allow drunkenness to occur in your life. And so listen, both positions are biblical. Uh, and your decision is gonna be based on your personal choice and your conscience. And so just choose wisely. And I think the bigger issue is that we don't judge someone based on their decision. And we can't let that become a divisive issue amongst friends and amongst uh, church members. I think it's, important that we fight for that unity. Uh, now, if you're a student, you're under 21, it's illegal. And so God says uh, to submit to the authority, uh, governing authorities and obey the law. So not to obey the law is not gonna go uh, well for you. If you're going to places where people are, are actively getting drunk and you're experiencing that environment, it's going to not go well for you. Um, and the bigger question in that situation would be, are you honoring God in that lifestyle are you honoring God in that vein? And I know a lot of people uh, in that situation, well, I'm gonna designate driver. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take care of people. And that's just an unwise position. That is actually, I would say, dumb. 
That is very stupid. That's like me going to the strip club to say, I'm gonna minister to all the guys watching the pornography in front of them. <laughs> Think about it. That's just dumb. Young people, we love you. We were all young. And when you're young, you tend to be dumb. And so that's why the Bible is helpful for us. So when Solomon says, enjoy a glass of wine, he, he's speaking from a, a Middle Eastern uh, culture uh, that loved wine, enjoyed wine on a regular basis. And his point is he wants us to enjoy our life by having a good drink. And so for you, that might be sweet tea. That might be a nice you know, cup of coffee, a pour over cup, which is my favorite or uh, whatever it is for you. He says, do it and enjoy it for the glory of God. Letter C, he continues, he says, enjoy the wife whom you love. Enjoy your wife, right? This is, this is helpful. Uh, in verse nine, um, it, that's, verse nine's probably not going to show up on a Hallmark card uh, next Valentine's. He's like, can you just imagine, honey, I love you. All the days of my vain life. <laughs> because this is my portion in life. <laughs> to toil all the toil which I toil under the sun for you. <laughs> Marriage feels like toil, that's for sure. <laughs> but he, he wants us to enjoy our wife. And so to enjoy our wife means that you've gotta do fun things together, all right? So one of the best ways to stay married, one of the best ways to stay healthy in marriage is to actually enjoy each other. It's to actually have fun with one another. So you have to have regular fun moments in your life. Date nights, activities, and if you do that, then you'll, you're less likely to have to worry about divorce. Ladies, you need to understand and realize that fun when it comes to men means sex. And, and so that is a, a good, glorious, God-honoring thing uh, for those who are married. But men, we also have to realize that there are other things that can be fun in life. <laughs> there are not many, but there are a few. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, like food? No. <laughs> no, there are. And so husbands, you've got to do the hard work of having those conversations and figuring out what those fun things can be and should be. And then somebody has to plan those and put those on the calendar. And it would be a foolish, foolish thing. We're talking about wisdom. It'd be a foolish thing for a mom and a dad to say, well, we have kids and they're busy and they're involved in sports. And so we put our focus and attention on them. When they go, then we'll have you know, time to have those fun things. That is a very foolish thing to believe. If you are not having regular fun with your spouse now, you won't have a marriage when your kids are gone. And so you have to do the hard work of planning and focusing and having fun together to enjoy your wife. Um, he says in verse eight, to put on white garments. Now in, in the ancient Near East at this time, white clothes meant you were celebrating something. And so the important point here is dress up sometimes. Celebrate each other, dress up, put on a dress, put the sweatpants back in the attic for a minute, please. <laughs> put on something more flattering. Um, your husband will appreciate it. Husbands, dress up sometimes. You don't have to wear baggy clothes that don't fit you all the time. You could wear something a little nicer, right? Let your wife pick it out, wear it, go out, have fun together. 
He says, put oil on your head. Now, in the, in the desert, here at desert at this time, you're your you know, skin is dry, cracking all the time. And so oil was meant as a moisturizer. It was also uh, used to help you smell better. And so uh, get dressed up, put some cologne on, put some perfume on, put some lotion on those ashy parts of the body and you know, moisturize yourself. Why? Smell good, look good, feel good, go out, have a good time. Don't forget about your breath. It's Really a tragedy to get all dressed up looking good and then your breath smells like toilet water. Um, Breath mints are a good thing. Single guys, why are you not taking notes? I don't see, that's why you're single, right? I'm just kidding, they're all taking notes, I'm sure. Some of you are thinking, how do we go from we're all gonna die to we're all going on a date tonight? I told you it's gonna be one of those movies. Um, And then letter D, he closes with, enjoy your work and your hobbies. Enjoy your work. He says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. So find a job, find a hobby, find enjoyable things to do with your family. And when you understand that death is sudden and certain and sad, you need to take advantage of the time that you have together now. I think Solomon is saying, enjoy this life. Death is an enemy. You are gonna face it. But that should motivate us to live a meaningful life for the glory of God. I think Americans in uh, uh, this culture think that Christianity is just dull and just boring. But here and elsewhere in the Bible, I think God clearly wants us to enjoy our life. Living a holy life doesn't mean dull and boring. Following Jesus doesn't mean you aren't allowed to enjoy the pleasures of life. Let's not forget that God created paradise. The Garden of Eden was paradise. What did they do? He had a husband and a wife with all the food they could could possibly need. They were alone, and yes, they were naked. Now that sounds like a pretty good gig. And Adam messed it up for all of us. Dang it. Sin entered the world, and with it, the curse of sin and death. But if you look back at verse four with me, he says that, that he that has joined with the living has hope. Now, are you joined with the living? Because when you are joined with the living, you have hope. We need to remember, we've got to look all over the Bible to find answers. We don't just look in one book. We have to look all over. Ecclesiastes is not a book where we get all the answers to life. Uh, this isn't the kind of book that you will find everything about salvation and life. This is the Old Testament. This is pre-Jesus, obviously. The book really helps us understand how to serve God when we don't have all the answers. And so for hope and for salvation, we turn to Jesus. Part of Solomon's struggle is that he didn't have the hope of Jesus, but you and I do, amen? So we know that with Jesus, everything is meaningful. And so if you need to give your life to Jesus today, if, you've, if you're not certain where you're going to go when you die, please go to the care and prayer room. Let them know that you need to give your life to Jesus today before you leave. Here's the bottom line. The reality of death 
either makes life meaningless or it makes life meaningful. Now, what's it gonna do for you? Every single one of us is different. The reality of death is gonna make you feel like everything is meaningless and you're not gonna care about anything. Or if you accept the reality of death, it's gonna make every single moment meaningful. So Solomon is saying, stop wasting your life. Invite some friends over to your house. Go out and have a big dinner. Dress up, look good, feel good. Put on some cologne. Have a laugh, enjoy each other, have some fun. Eat something good, drink something good. Get a hobby, enjoy doing it. Enjoy doing it with your family. Yes, death is real. It is certain, it is sad, and it is sudden. But until that day, God is giving you an opportunity to enjoy your life. And the reason we can do that is because Jesus is our living hope, right? We sang about it today. He is alive today. He is giving us hope today. And he's alive and he is well today. That means that your sin has been paid for. He's our living hope today because the tomb is empty. You have a future. It is not over, right? Death has been defeated. The grave is empty. So we're not gonna waste any more time. We're, we're not gonna focus on the, all the things we don't know. We're gonna focus on the things we do know. And we do know that death is certain. Yet we serve a God that is alive and well, and he has made us alive in Christ. So go enjoy your life, amen? Enjoy it. Get your head out of the gutter. Get your head up and pointing to the clouds where Jesus is seated on his throne. That's it today. We don't have time to do anything else. We gotta just get up. We gotta go home. We gotta have a good meal and we're gonna enjoy our life. So that's it. We're not singing. We're not doing anything else. It's time to go, amen. I'm going on a date. I'm gonna eat something good. Y'all have a good day. You're dismissed, really. You're go. There's not enough time. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Foothills Church. If you made a decision to follow Christ while listening today, or if you have some more questions about what that looks like, then let us know. You can text FC Decision to 97000, or you can head over to foothillschurch.com/slash decision. We hope you have a great week. 